this Thursday, uh, Spencer and Stephanie were practicing, and I told them a story about how uh, when I went to a youth group one Wednesday night, and the pastor said, hey, um, I've been really busy golfing today, and so I didn't have time to prepare a message, and so I'm just going to be led by the Spirit and just kind of shoot from the hip. And so right before we started, Spencer said, hey, don't be afraid to be led by the Spirit and shoot from the hip. I'm not going to do that today. All right? I hope you guys all had a Merry Christmas. And uh, since the new year starts tomorrow, Happy New Year. You know, I've never been a huge fan of New Year's resolutions, um, but I am a big believer in having goals. And so I'm not going to ask you if you've made any New Year's resolutions, but let's talk about some goals for a second. Who has a fitness goal for the new year? It's okay. You can raise your hand. It's okay. Or maybe you just have one in mind, but you haven't written it down on paper yet. You're like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. That's kind of where I'm at. I think I'm going to start a diet. Not, but like, when do you start though? Do you start tomorrow on the new year? No, because that's a holiday, right? So you got to start on Tuesday because that's when the year actually starts because New Year's, okay, that doesn't have anything. What about a financial goal? Does anybody have a financial goal? Okay, all right. Um, now, this one's more important. Hopefully, everyone raises their hand. What about a spiritual goal? You have a spiritual goal for the new year. Okay, all right. Uh, if you don't, that's okay, because you can make one today. It's not too late to set one, because it's not the new year yet. Even if it's just something simple, like reading your Bible more, wanting to be more Christ-like, those are good goals to have. And just give us a direction to head as we head into the new year. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with my message. I was just curious. But this morning, I am honored to have the privilege to study God's word with you. Uh, like Pastor Brent mentioned, he was out of town this week having Christmas with his family in Illinois. Where is he? He's usually sitting right here. Oh, you're in the back. I, I, did you do that so I won't get intimidated? I won't get nervous? You've got your bulletin. You've got your pen. You're ready to take notes. That's good. Did you have a good trip? Did you have a good trip? You're not listening already? This is, come on, is my mic loud enough? To, I, we got that figured out, right? Seriously, though, I want to say huge thanks to uh, Spencer and Stephanie for leading this morning. That was great. Such a blessing to be able to just worship. And I love uh, preaching and studying God's word with you guys, but it's not something that I get to do very often because I'm usually over here leading worship. So again, thank you. And thank you to Brent and the pastoral leadership team for giving me this opportunity to share God's word with you today. Today we're going to be continuing on in the book of Matthew, and we're starting a new chapter today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. And while you do, I'd like to go to the Lord and ask his blessing over this time. And also I would like to pray for uh, Pastor Bo Skeen. I don't know if you guys remember him, but he did preach here, I don't know, probably six months ago-ish. Um, he's a retired pastor, but still has a very powerful ministry. Uh, but he's in the hospital right now and, uh, he's on a ventilator. They did multiple surgeries yesterday. He's not doing great. Uh, there is hope and obviously we trust the Lord. Um, but I do want to take a second to pray for him and pray for this time that we're about to spend together. So let's bow our heads together. Dear heavenly father, uh, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to study your word. Uh, Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise, and uh, we just look to you and we give you our hearts and minds now. We ask that you would speak to us through the power of your word, uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would strengthen me, uh, that I would not get in the way of the message that you've put on my heart, uh, but you would use me as a vessel for your glory, Lord. 
And God, I also just want to lift up uh, Bo Skeen to you right now as uh, he's in the hospital, Lord, just rest your hand upon him. And uh, Lord, we ask for healing and we trust you in this situation knowing that uh, you are on the throne and that you are Lord over all. And so give us the strength to trust you through this as we uh, just trust that you are in control. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. Uh, but before we get started, I know another distraction before we get started. I want to play a little Bible trivia with you, okay? So do you have a bulletin? Do you have a pen? If you don't, you can like make a note in your phone. I'm just going to ask you one question, and uh, I want you to write it down and save the answer for later. I'm not going to give you the answer right now, and I don't want you to cheat I don't want you to Google it. I don't want you to look ahead in the text because the answer is in the text. But when we get there, that's when you'll find out. All right, are you ready? Are you ready for the question? Who did Jesus say was the greatest human ever conceived by man? Okay, lock in your answer. Write it down. Think about it. Think of all the the big characters in the Bible that played important roles. Who did Jesus say was the greatest human? Now, if you're a visitor here this morning, uh, the way that we do things is we usually pick a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse, and this morning is no different, and we usually use the New Living Translation just because it's easy to read and it's easy to understand. So I titled the message this morning, Doubt, Love, and Rejection. I was at Texas Roadhouse last night with a friend talking about it, and the person next to me heard that was the title of the message. He said, well, that's a, a loaded title. Like, well, you can come listen for yourself and find out what it's all about. But the text divides nicely into three points, and those points will be point number one, the question of doubt, as we look at verses one through three. Point number two, the loving response in verses four through 12. And then we'll finish up with the childish rejection in point number three as we look at verses 13 through 19. So as we start Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus has given his disciples instructions, and now it's time to get to work. And so he sends the disciples out to start preaching all over the region, and Jesus does the same. He gets to work with ministry. So let's jump in with point number one and see what happens. Point number one, the question of doubt, starting in verse one. Here we go. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, if you're anything like me, you might be reading these verses, scratching your head, thinking, wait, 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 wait. What is going on here? Isn't this the same John who's been preaching about the coming Messiah? Isn't this the same John who baptized Jesus? And yes, you would be correct. This is the same John. And we'll dive a little bit deeper into this in a second here. But first, a little bit of recap as to what's been going on previously in the book of Matthew. That's my, that's my voiceover voice. Obviously, you weren't very impressed with it. So in chapter 3, we see John the Baptist baptize Jesus and then Uh, A little bit after, we don't know exactly how much time passes, but in chapter 4, John gets arrested. So now we find him in prison with some doubt, unsure of what is taking Jesus so long to take power and become king. And he knew that the Messiah was coming, and he believed, but he had certain expectations of Jesus that weren't necessarily accurate. 
And we never do anything like that, right? Of course we do. It's in our nature to think that we have it all figured out. And I'm sure you've heard the saying, uh, the more that I know, the more I realize I don't know. And I've always liked that. But unfortunately, because we really don't know very much at all, we have a tendency to think that we know how to do God's job better than he does. Or at the very least, we think that we know how he should handle our lives and our situations. And when he doesn't handle them the way that we think he should, it's easy for doubt to creep in and take hold of our minds and hearts. And this is essentially what has happened to John. He was fired up, and he was ready for the Messiah to come and save the day. I mean, if you think about it, his life revolved around it. Before he was arrested, he was living out in the wilderness preaching about the soon-coming Messiah. Everything that he lived for was about the coming Messiah. Uh, He grew up with Jesus. And like I said, he baptized Jesus. He potentially, think about this, this is kind of wild. He potentially even saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and then heard God confirm that Jesus was in fact his dearly beloved son. So John the Baptist had seen the work of God. He probably thought he had made it. And in his mind, Jesus had come. I mean, that's the dream, right? Like Jesus comes back, we're here, we're, let's do this, let's go. And in his mind, Jesus had come, and he was ready to take power and be king. And I'm sure that when he was arrested, he probably viewed it as just a minor setback. There's nothing to worry about because he knew the Messiah. And when the Messiah was ready to rumble at any moment, Jesus was going to show up and kick the doors in and set John free. A few hours passed. Hours turned into days, days into weeks. And John starts to think, wait a second, did I make a mistake? Surely the Messiah wouldn't just leave me here to rot in jail, right? Don't get me wrong, I do believe that John believed, but in his darkest moment, doubt started to creep in. And there's some application here for us. How many times have we seen the work of God? How many times, or how many of us strive to build our lives around Christ? And then the second we find ourselves in the middle of a difficult trial, questions and doubts start to creep in. Now, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but I do know from personal experience that in our darkest moments, doubt can definitely creep in. Some of you know uh, that several years ago, I lost my little brother to some drugs that were laced with fentanyl. And that was one of the hardest things that I've had to walk through. And I'll be honest with you, I had moments of doubt. I didn't understand how God could possibly use something so terrible For his glory. In fact, I still don't know. I wish I did. I wish I had those answers and could see what God was doing through that terrible situation, but we don't always get to see behind the curtain. We don't always get to know what God is doing. But I do want to encourage you this morning because even though God doesn't always work when and how we think he should, that doesn't mean he's not working. We're never promised an easy life. In fact, we're promised that we will face trials. And so that lends the question, well, where do we go with our doubts and questions? Thankfully, we have John to look at as an example, and we can go to Jesus. In his darkest moment, he went to Jesus with his doubts and questions because he believed. And just because you have moments of doubt or questions for God doesn't mean you aren't a believer. 
So there's some encouragement there. But what's important is that you go to the Lord with those questions and trust him while he works and trust him while you wait, just like John did. Which leads us to point number two, the loving response. And this response is so great, and it really is so loving. And I know that it's, it's easy to kind of beat yourself up over the fact that you have questions for God. Maybe you think that you're a weak Christian if you have any doubt in your mind. Or maybe you think that God's going to scold you. But Jesus shows us in his response that that's not the case at all. So verse 4, Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Now I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship uh, with the gospel of the Matthew, Matthew, just the way that he writes, because on one hand, he doesn't waste any time. He gets straight to the point. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes it's so brief that it's easy to think, well, that's it. That, what, like, what else happened? And it'd be easy to think, wow, John's disciples just traveled all this way to have a pretty serious conversation with Jesus, and this is all they get. But if you look a little closer, uh, there is more to it. You see, Jesus says, Tell John what you've heard and seen. So I want you to picture the situation. Jesus is out teaching, preaching, and healing people, and John's disciples come looking for answers, and Jesus gives them ample proof with his actions, his words, and his miracles. He's not brushing them off by any means. Jesus could have been annoyed at this interruption. I mean, he was doing God's work. This was his ministry. His ministry was important. I know how that is, right? Hey, I'm working. Leave me alone. No, that's, that's not it. And here we see that uh, Jesus doesn't get annoyed, which is interesting because if you think of other times in Scripture uh, where people approach Jesus asking him for a miracle or asking for him to prove himself, he does get annoyed, specifically when the Pharisees ask him for a sign and he just shuts them down and calls them evil. So you guys get nothing except for the sign of Jonah. And that's coming in Matthew 16. But the key difference here is that Jesus loved John and knew that John believed, but also saw that he was struggling. And Jesus is so brilliant here because not only does he prove himself with action and miracles, but he also flexes his credentials in a way that John would have recognized and understood. You see, Jesus' response is actually a direct reference to a prophecy about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 35 that talks about the blind seeing, the lame walking, lepers being cured, and the deaf hearing. So Jesus really does go above and beyond for John. But what I think is interesting here is that, yes, Jesus answers John's question, but he didn't correct John's expectations. Instead, he does something else in verse 6. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Or the ESV says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as we're about to see later in the text, uh, people aren't necessarily giving Jesus the warmest reception. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But Jesus knows that John is having some doubts, and so he's encouraging him not to lose faith no matter what happens and no matter what the people around him are saying or thinking or doing. 
So quick application here before we move on. Don't lose faith. You may have moments of doubt and you find yourself in trials and you don't understand what God is doing in your life. But just as Jesus didn't correct John's expectations and share his plan with him, he simply confirmed that he was the Messiah and told him to trust him. And so we don't need to know what God is doing. We just need to trust that God is who he says he is and trust him while he works. Okay, so John has got his answer, and his disciples are now about to take off, but the crowd is standing there uh, trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, they know John. Uh, They heard his message, and now they catch wind that John, the guy who baptized Jesus, is now questioning who he is. So Jesus takes this opportunity to have John's back and also, in the process, further prove who he is. So let's continue in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of men did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Now, this is another glimpse of Jesus' brilliance, and this is one of the things I love about scripture. We could read this passage and just kind of go over it, but when you take a second to really dive in and look closer, you see so much more. Because this is another Old Testament prophecy reference. Uh, found in Malachi 3.1, and it says, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So as you can see, this is almost a direct quote to the verse that confirms that John the Baptist is the messenger, but also confirms that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So Jesus says, John's the messenger, I'm the Messiah, but wait, there's more. If you still have questions about John, let me tell you this. And you can probably see where this is going. And it's finally time to reveal the answer to that trivia question that I asked when we started. Who did Jesus say was the greatest man? Raise your hand if you guessed Moses. Nobody, okay. Uh, Raise your hand if you guessed Solomon. I mean, he was the wisest. Okay, raise your hand if you guessed Abraham. He had great faith. No hand, oh man. Please tell me y'all are going to get it 100% because I would be so excited. Okay, wait, what, what, what about David? Did you guess David? Anybody guess David? Okay. Yeah, I mean, after all, David, a man after God's own heart, the bar doesn't get much higher than that, does it? Well, turns out it does. Verse 11, here's the answer. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Okay, raise your hand if you guessed John the Baptist. Now I'm confused. Who did you guys guess? Hey, go ahead. Shout him out. Shout him out. I want to know who you guessed. Job. Okay. Elijah. Oh, ooh, that's an interesting answer for multiple reasons. Anybody else? Isaiah. Okay, good, good. Well, for those of you that guessed it, great job. You nailed it. That is a really tricky one. I, I asked my dad this week, I asked my mom and dad this week, but my dad's a retired pastor, and uh, my mom was very involved with ministry with him. 
both very smart, love them to death. If they're watching, which they probably are. Hi, Mom and Dad. <laughs> I asked him this question. My mom's like, uh, Solomon, right? He's the wisest. I was like, no, he's the wisest, not the greatest. And then my dad shouts out, John the Baptist. I'm like, oh, man, I'm so proud of my dad. He got it. My mom says, did you Google it? <laughs> and he just laughed. Yeah, I did. I did. I always love seeing Jesus express his love with words, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He says that John is the greatest human conceived by man and details how important his work is. But then he does something really cool and drops a hint towards what's to come. He says, John was great, but he doesn't even compare to the lowest person in the kingdom of heaven. And what's so cool about this is that This is a contrast between the old and the new covenant. And because of the cross in this moment, he's pointing towards the cross. And because of the cross, we are a part of the new covenant. And so if you have put your faith in Jesus, you're covered by the work that Jesus did on the cross. And this makes us righteous and blameless in the eyes of God. And remember, righteous doesn't mean perfect. As a perfectionist, I would hear righteous and think, okay, that means perfect. It doesn't. It means right with God. Righteous simply means right with God. And because of the cross, we are righteous and we are right with God. And that's a pretty big deal. Especially when we look at the life of John the Baptist and how important his work was. Now this just goes to show that, and this is for all of the men in the room who I know need to hear this, our value isn't based on the work that we do, but the work that Jesus has done. Amen? Can I get an amen? Okay, that was a little weak. Can I get a hallelujah? So that's better. That's better. Thank you, Brent. I heard it. I heard it. That's weird to hear him say it from that side of the room. Now, there's a whole other sermon that could be preached here, uh, but we've got to keep moving because we still have a lot to cover. So back to our text. Jesus goes on in verse 12. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Like I said before, being a Christian isn't a walk in the park and those who desire to be a part of the kingdom of heaven must press on through the attacks and the trials that they face. And if I want you to think about this, if you didn't know, uh, John the Baptist is in prison because he called out Herod's sin. And when you stand for righteousness and you stand for the truth, it's going to make people uncomfortable. And you may even find yourself under attack, but we must press on forcefully. Now, commentators say that this is an extremely difficult verse to interpret because they don't know if Jesus is talking about external pressure or internal pressure when he says forcefully advancing. I like to think that uh, maybe it's a little bit of both. And I'll explain that with a metaphor that the Bible uses often, and that's marriage. And marriage is a metaphorical picture of our relationship with Christ. And if you've been married for more than a day, uh, you know that it's not always easy. And the world has absolutely attacked and diminished the beauty and value of pure, biblical, godly marriage. And so you have to fight for your marriage every single day. I want to encourage you this morning that if you're in the process of fighting for your marriage, don't give up that fight. Keep fighting. Okay? Okay. All right. We, we made a deal. It's a verbal deal. You said, okay, 
It's binding. It's a binding contract. There's temptation everywhere, internal and external. The world preaches selfishness and instant gratification, while Jesus preaches selflessness and eternal glory. <laughs> That's the key to a successful marriage, being like Christ. Selflessness, not selfishness. And we have a sin nature, and it's easy to be tempted both internally and externally. But we have something that the world doesn't have, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit strengthens us and empowers us to flee from temptation and keep fighting that fight. And if you want what God has to offer, then you're going to have to fight that fight. Just like a healthy, God-honoring marriage takes hard work and determination, so does advancing the kingdom of God. Now, the, the tension here and also the encouragement is it's God's work, but he gives us the strength to do that hard work and gives us the termination. Jesus has called us to make disciples and stand for truth, so be ready for a fight. The good news here is that there is nothing that can stop our God. Amen? All right, so point number one was the question of doubt. We just looked at the loving response, and that leads us to point number three, the childish rejection as we pick up in verse 13. For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses look forward to this present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So here's another bit, another little bit of a head-scratching moment. And this text may take a little bit of faith to accept what's being said here. But the first part is fairly simple, where it says, all of the prophets and law of Moses. Uh, this is a variation of a phrase that was often used in the Old Testament to refer to the Old Testament as a whole. So basically he's saying that everything has been building up to this moment. This is the moment that they had all been waiting for, the coming of the Messiah. And if you're paying attention, or if you've been counting, this is now the third time in one setting that he's revealed who he is to these people. And then he says in verse 14, and if you're willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. Now, here's the, the part where it's head scratching, and I don't want you to get hung up on Elijah here. Uh, John is not the point, because he's saying that John is Elijah. And you're like, wait a second, how do, you, how do you put those two together? That doesn't really make sense. John's not the point, and Elijah is not the point. Jesus is the point here. And what he's saying here is that God used John to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which I'll read that to you right now. It says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn hearts of fathers to their children and their hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Great and dreadful. Did you catch that in verse 5? It's a great day for those who know the Lord, but a dreadful day for those who reject him. The other thing that I want you to take note of is at the end of verse 6 where it says, Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So basically, if God doesn't send someone to make a way, then everyone is in big trouble and there's no hope. But this is the point that I think that Jesus is trying to make here in our text. He's saying that God did, in fact, send John 
to prepare the way. And if they can't believe that, then they'll never believe that he, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. I know you probably still have questions. If you have questions, feel free to email them to me at brent at desertheightschurch.com. I'm kidding. I have studied this quite a bit um, and lost a little bit of sleep over it because I'm like, "This, this just doesn't make sense. How can John be Elijah? It's John fulfilling the prophecy of Elijah, but it's about Jesus. That's the main point. Seriously, you can email me or text me. You don't have to email Brent. We can have a conversation about it afterwards. Um, And that's why I thought, Josh, your answer of saying Elijah was the greatest is pretty good, pretty interesting. So in verse 15, he says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. He's basically laying it all out there and then telling them to pay attention, try to understand. It's all right there. Maybe if you paid attention, you might get it which is interesting because he's not necessarily speaking plain English, right? Well, actually, he wouldn't have been speaking English at all. But I think that this can still be a challenge for us because if those people would have truly been seeking God and hanging on every word, on his every word, then maybe they would have been able to put together the pieces and see Jesus' brilliance and see who he really was. And we, in a similar fashion, have the word of God And so often when we read it, we pass over its words and we don't take enough time to stop and absorb what God really might be trying to say. I didn't put this here. This was actually just sitting here. But the challenge is, do your soap, right? I know it's not soap Sunday. That's technically next Sunday because it's the first Sunday of the year. But if you're looking to make a commitment for the new year, commit to doing soap. At the very least, Spend some genuine time with the Lord and his word and ask him, just like Spencer prayed this morning, to open your heart, your eyes, and your ears to hear and then try to apply what it is that the Lord is trying to teach you through his word. Now, that was a little bit of extra. Uh, There's no need to reflect that in your giving. Pastor Brent might have asked you to do that, but since I'm filling in, I'm going to give you that one for free. Now, back to our text. Jesus, being who he is, uh, having just laid it all out there for them, he knows their hearts and knows that they don't believe, so he gets frustrated, and he calls them out in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. He just called them children. I don't know if you caught that or not, but he's, he's calling them out, calling them kids. Hence the childish rejection, the name of this point. Verse 17. We played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs, and you didn't mourn. So he's basically saying, what more proof can I give you? Scripture has told you, I have shown you that I am the Messiah, and it's not good enough for you. I've shown you miracles. You've seen the messenger, and you refuse to believe. And because you refuse to believe, you are going to miss out on the kingdom of heaven. And he furthers this train of thought and makes sure that he knows exactly, that they know exactly what he's talking about. Verse 18, he says, For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. That's kind of funny if you think about it. I mean, people kind of give you the same reaction today if you tell them, yeah, I'm a Christian and I don't drink. They're like, why? Why don't you drink? <laughs> And then 
Jesus, on the other hand, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. So Jesus says, you reject John because you think he's boring. He doesn't drink, so you think he's weird. He eats bugs. That is a little weird. I'll give him that. But then he says, me, I eat and drink with you, and you think that I'm a glutton and a drunk. So there's no pleasing you people. There's no making you happy. But if, and then what he says at the end, basically what he's saying is, uh, if you would just take time to look at the fruit that John's life has produced and look at who I really am, then you would see. And that's what he means when he says that wisdom is shown to be right by its results. People love to judge, don't they? And people always have something to complain about. And I want to encourage you and remind you, it's not our job to please people, but it's our calling to glorify and please God. So let the fruit of your life be the proof that Jesus is the Messiah and that we have hope in him. Some things never change, and there will always be people who have a problem with you simply because you're a Christian and they don't believe. So it doesn't matter if you drink or don't drink or it's people are going to have a problem with you if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ. And this can be a hard pill to swallow if you're a people pleaser. And I know, I hate to admit this, but I can be a people pleaser and uh, worry about what people think of me. But that doesn't matter. Don't be a people pleaser, be a God pleaser. If you have Twitter, you can quote me on Twitter or X. You guys are like, no, no, no one in here has Twitter except for you. That's fine. I accept that. If you do, you can follow me. (laughs) Let the fruit of the Holy Spirit alive in your life strengthen you to be who God wants you to be. I'm going to say that again. Let the fruit of the Holy Spirit alive in your life strengthen you to be who God wants you to be. Now, the other side of the coin here is if you're here this morning and you don't believe, what are you waiting for? Don't get so caught up in looking for proof that you missed the Messiah altogether like these people did. Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Will you let him in or will you reject him? Now, before we close today, uh, let's just recap at what we've looked at. I want you to be able to remember what we talked about today. And so in point number one, we saw the question of doubt. We saw that it's okay if you find yourself having moments of doubt but turn to Jesus with that doubt. And in point number two, we saw the loving response. Now, Jesus wasn't upset with John for having doubt. He gladly answered his doubts and showed him how great his love for him was. And then in our last point, we just saw the childish rejection. And Jesus tells the people that John is the messenger, that he's prepared the way for him, the Messiah, And they childishly rejected Jesus because they had already made their minds up and were convinced that they knew what to expect of the coming Messiah. And Jesus didn't fit the bill of what they wanted in a Savior. And so if you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Jesus because he's not met your expectations, he's not who you think he should be, that's okay. John wasn't sure what to expect either. But I want to encourage you this morning Because even though God might not be who you want him to be, he's greater. 
He and he alone is God, and only he is worthy of our hearts and worthy of our praise. So turn to him with your doubts, your questions, and your weaknesses, and he will meet you right where you're at. And I promise you won't regret turning to him.